Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rosa Parks rocked back and forth in her seat as the bus made its way through downtown. It felt like another normal day. The air was hot and the sun cast long shadows down the sleepy Alabama street. As it did every day, the bus stopped outside the Empire Theater. Rosa watched as a group of white passengers stepped on board and moved to their seats. But one of the new white passengers was left standing. The whites-only section at the front of the bus was full. The bus driver ordered a row of black passengers to stand up and make room for the man. Three passengers complied, but Rosa didn't. She didn't feel like moving. The driver eyed Rosa through the rearview mirror. Once more, he ordered her to move. She met his gaze and continued to sit, defiant. She wasn't going anywhere, at least not of her own free will. She couldn't know it at the time, but Rosa Parks had just made herself a symbol that would spurn one of the most successful protests in American history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Historical Figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Rosa Parks, dubbed the mother of the civil rights movement. She's most famous today for refusing to give up a seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Her act of resistance against racist segregation launched a boycott that proved pivotal to the fight for racial equality. 
But Rosa's activism extended beyond bus protests. An active member of the NAACP, Rosa championed black victims of sexual assault, organized acts of civil disobedience, and founded educational initiatives for disadvantaged students of color. Rosa Parks was born Rosa Louise McCauley on February 4, 1913, in Tuskegee, Alabama. Her early life was unstable, as her parents separated when Rosa was only two. Rosa's birthplace in Tuskegee ensured she grew up in the center of the nascent civil rights movement. Prominent black intellectual Booker T. Washington was active there. As soon as Rosa was old enough to understand issues of race, she was hyper-aware of the inequality as well. Every Sunday, she worshipped at the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a historically black denomination initially founded to promote an abolitionist theology and then later devoted to racial equality. When Rosa was 11 years old, she moved with her mother and brother to Montgomery, Alabama, where her grandparents lived. There, she continued her harsh education about racial politics. By the early 1920s, the white supremacist hate group the Ku Klux Klan was increasingly active. For a decade after the Civil War, the KKK had terrorized people of color in the southern United States. The hate group had declined to the point of nearly disbanding in the late 1800s, but white supremacy experienced a resurgence in response to the growing number of immigrants in the U.S. By the time Rosa was a young child, the KKK boasted more than four million active members. Fearful of racially motivated attacks, each evening Rosa's grandfather laid a loaded shotgun across his lap and slept in a rocking chair near the front door. Eager to help defend her home and family, Rosa took to sleeping on the floor beside him. So, when Rosa Parks was 11, her mother enrolled her in the private, segregated Montgomery Industrial School for Girls. It was the best education available to a black girl in the city. Despite her young age, Rosa had to work to pay for her tuition. She took a janitorial job at the school, cleaning up rooms after classes. And every day, she saw little reminders of the inequality she faced. The white students had a bus. Rosa and other black students didn't. She walked to school every day, even in the winter. In her autobiography, Rosa Parks, My Story, Rosa wrote, I'd see the bus pass every day, but to me, that was a way of life. We had no choice but to accept what was the custom. The bus was among the first ways I realized there was a black world and a white world. During her walks, Rosa often passed by white children and adults who would shout racial slurs at her unprovoked. Some children even tossed rocks at her as she walked by. To cope with the stress, Rosa found comfort in her religious beliefs. She reminded herself that her bullies were simply lost sinners and prayed for them while they harassed her. She knew she couldn't do anything more concrete to defend herself because the police wouldn't look kindly on a black girl fighting white people, even if they'd started it. Rosa attended high school at the laboratory school at the historically black Alabama State Teachers College. 
but unfortunately she had to drop out a year later to help care for her ailing grandmother. Shortly after Rosa's grandmother died, her mother, too, grew ill. Now the family's primary caretaker, Rosa needed to work to support them and provide medical care. Education was out of the question, at least until someone new entered Rosa's life and encouraged her to go back to school. In 1931, when Rosa was 18, a mutual friend introduced her to a 28-year-old barber named Raymond Parks. It was clear during their very first meeting that Raymond was romantically interested in her, but Rosa didn't return his affection. One of her biggest reservations lay in the fact that Raymond was a light-skinned black man. Rosa didn't find him physically attractive. And she also doubted that a man who could pass for white could really understand her day-to-day struggles as a dark-skinned black woman. However, as their friendship blossomed, Rosa learned that Raymond was a passionate civil rights advocate and a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP. She was surprised to find that although Raymond dressed well and was an intelligent and thoughtful speaker, he barely attended school at all, thanks to segregation. In time, a romance blossomed between Raymond and Rosa, and they were married on December 18, 1932, when she was 19 and he was 29. Raymond encouraged Rosa to pursue the education he'd never had, and with his support, she returned to high school and finally completed her degree. Soon after, Rosa got a job as a seamstress at a department store, while Raymond continued on in his work with the NAACP. Although Rosa and Raymond shared beliefs about equal rights, initially she kept her distance from the organization. NAACP members feared reprisal from white supremacists, and they regularly came to meetings heavily armed should they need to defend themselves. On one occasion, Raymond volunteered to host a meeting at his and Rosa's house. Shaken by the number of men who arrived armed, Rosa walked out of the house and sat on the porch, hunched over with her head between her knees. While the men inside discussed politics, she sat alone in the dark, waiting in fear for the first bullets to fly. In the moment, Rosa was paralyzed by her fear of violence. But long term, She grew increasingly frustrated with the sexist assumption that her husband could take risks and join the NAACP while she needed to be shielded from it. So in 1943, 30-year-old Rosa finally joined for herself. Once again, sexism reared its head at the NAACP. As the only woman to attend on her first night, Rosa was tasked with taking meeting notes She was elected secretary at that same meeting. But she soon had the opportunity to advocate for women and black people alike as the chapter began to examine the racial inequality in how police investigated sexual assaults. It was all too common at the time for black men to be falsely accused of raping white women. If those men were lucky, they'd go to court but still have to plead their case before racist judges and juries. If they were unlucky, the accused were often lynched by white mobs before their trials began. 
black women also suffered from unjust investigations. When they filed reports, the police rarely took their cases seriously. Rape survivors of color had few opportunities to pursue justice, especially if their attacker was white. A particularly egregious case involved a woman named Reese Taylor. On the evening of September 3, 1944, Reese was walking home from church with two friends when a group of white men abducted her and gang-raped her. After the assault, Reese reported to the police what had happened. Her friend corroborated the account. A few hours later, a police officer found the rapists and asked if they had an alibi. The men confessed that they'd raped Reese, and the police halted the investigation there without pressing charges. News of this crime and the police's inaction made it back to the NAACP later that month. Rosa volunteered to investigate Reese's case firsthand, not only to uncover the truth of the matter, but also to draw national attention to the injustice. But before Rosa could capture the attention of the press, she drew scrutiny from the police. She stepped off the bus near Reese's home in Abbeville, Alabama, to find the sheriff armed and waiting for her already. Rosa walked right past him to enter Reese's house. For the duration of their meeting, Rosa noticed the patrol car that drove back and forth in front of the house. She was resolved to just ignore the police until Reese's front door burst open and the sheriff stepped inside. He warned Rosa that he didn't approve of troublemakers and urged her to leave. Rosa packed up her belongings and departed. She was content to let the sheriff think he'd won this battle. She'd bring him the war. Up next, we'll discuss how Rosa Parks and the NAACP advocated for Reese Taylor. Now, back to the story. In September 1944, 31-year-old NAACP activist Rosa Parks met with rape survivor Reese Taylor in Abbeville, Alabama. Local police tried to stem Rosa's advocacy, attempting to intimidate and even threaten her into letting Reese's case disappear. The moment she was back in Montgomery, Rosa returned to the NAACP office and explained the encounter to their president, Edgar Nixon. In response to the police's tactics, Rosa and Nixon founded the Committee for Equal Justice for the Rights of Mrs. Reese Taylor. As a subgroup of the NAACP, this committee was comprised of a dozen leading black activists that were dedicated to making Taylor's story public knowledge. They sent dozens of letters to the office of Alabama Governor Chauncey Sparks, urging him to take the case to trial. In one letter, Rosa wrote, I know that you will not fail to let the people of Alabama know that there is equal justice for all citizens. Rosa's efforts paid off, and the incident was picked up by local newspapers, then by press around the nation. By February of 1945, Alabama Governor Sparks was forced to take action. He reluctantly agreed to launch a second special grand jury investigation into the crime. 
but the special jury ultimately brought no charges against the accused rapists. Rosa was furious. All her efforts had stirred up public support and outrage, but Taylor still couldn't secure justice. One by one, the frustrations of dealing with inequality on a daily basis started to build up. A year earlier, Rosa had had a memorable encounter of her own. The Montgomery bus system was becoming a lightning rod for political controversy, in part because of the extreme lengths they went to in the name of segregation. For example, bus tickets could only be purchased at the front of the vehicle, meaning all riders had to use the front doors to buy their ticket. But Montgomery buses also had segregated entrances, one for white people at the front and another for black passengers at the back. When a black person wanted to take the bus, she'd have to board at the front, purchase her ticket, then leave and reboard through the back doors. The ridiculous policy served no practical purpose. It was only there to embarrass and inconvenience black riders. On a rainy day in 1943, Rosa boarded a public bus in downtown Montgomery. Reluctant to go back out into the rain, she instead walked directly back to a seat without exiting and re-entering through the back door. The driver, James F. Blake, was infuriated. He ordered Rosa to exit and re-enter through her designated entrance. Twice, Rosa refused. So, Blake grabbed Rosa, dragged her outside, and threw her out into the rain. Before she had a chance to process what had happened, the bus pulled away, stranding her. The whole ordeal was incredibly traumatizing for Rosa. In her autobiography, she wrote, I never wanted to be on that man's bus again. After that, I made a point of looking at who was driving the bus before I got on. I didn't want any more run-ins with that mean one. Rosa wasn't the only person who was sick and tired of discrimination on the buses. In 1955, a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin was riding the bus home from Booker T. Washington High School in Montgomery. The bus was crowded that day, and Colvin was asked to stand so a white woman could take her seat. Colvin refused. The bus driver ordered Colvin to get up, but Colvin held her ground. This escalated to the point that the police were called and Colvin was arrested. At that time, Montgomery had several contradictory laws regarding segregation, a symptom of the push and pull between civil rights activists and the racist establishment. So one law not only permitted but required the bus driver to have Colvin arrested, while another protected Colvin's right to any seat she wanted. The NAACP had long been looking for an opportunity to challenge the pro-segregation laws and have them formally overturned. And Colvin's arrest seemed like a perfect opportunity to bring Jim Crow all the way before the Supreme Court. However, the organization soon learned that the teenage Colvin was pregnant out of wedlock. This should have had nothing to do with her case, but the NAACP feared that juries would be less sympathetic to an unmarried mother. With stakes so high, they didn't want to take any chances. 
The organization raised funds for Colvin's defense, but chose not to try to make her the new face of racial inequality. They'd have to wait for the next arrest. Nine months later, on December 1, 1955, 42-year-old Rosa Parks boarded bus number 2857. It was about 6 p.m., and she was on her way home from work at the Montgomery Fair department store. She paid her fare and sat down in an empty seat in the back section. She wasn't paying much attention as she boarded and didn't notice that the driver was James F. Blake, the same driver who'd kicked her off the bus the previous year for not using the back door. For the next three stops, the bus traveled along its normal route. More passengers got on and the bus slowly filled up. By the time the bus reached its third stop outside the Empire Theater, the whites-only section at the front of the bus was over capacity. There was no seat for one of the white passengers in the front. So Blake stopped the bus and told the first row of black passengers to stand up so he could make a new row for the white riders. He said, y'all better make it light on yourself and let me have those seats. Rosa hadn't planned to make a stand that day, but for whatever reason, something snapped. She later explained, I was not tired physically, no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, I was 42. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. Three of the black passengers stood up. Rosa didn't. She later wrote, when that white driver stepped back toward us, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. Rosa remained in her seat, staring at the driver. Blake squinted back at her. He asked her again, why don't you stand up? She replied, I don't think I should have to stand up. Then she moved to the window seat further away from the aisle. Blake asked her again if she was going to stand up. Rosa again refused. Blake threatened to call the police. Rosa responded, you do that. So Blake placed the call. While they waited, Rosa remained firmly planted in her seat. She tried to ignore the judgmental glares from the other riders, assured that she was in the right. Eventually, two policemen arrived at the scene. Blake explained the situation, and Rosa was charged with violating Chapter 6, Section 11 of the Montgomery City Code, which enforced the segregation of public buses. They took her off the bus and drove her downtown to police headquarters. Along the way, she asked one of the policemen, why do you push us around? The officer's response was simply, I don't know, but the law's the law and you're under arrest. Rosa was allowed one call at the station, which she made to her husband, Raymond. She told him that she had been given a court date on December 5th. Raymond was worried, but he was also proud of his wife for making a stand. He promised her he would find bail money to get her out of jail. Soon, NAACP chapter president Edgar Nixon arrived. The same night Rosa was sent to jail, 
Edgar paid her bail and had her released. By then, word of Rosa Parks' arrest had spread to most of Alabama's black population. Rosa was an upstanding member of the community, and many were astounded that she, of all people, would be arrested for such a minor offense. Edgar saw this anger in his community as an opportunity to get people mobilized. Later that night, he visited the park's home and explained a plan to Rosa. She could be the face of a new activist movement. And as Rosa listened to Edgar's pitch, she felt hope spring in her chest. She was about to spark the historic Montgomery bus boycott. Up next, we'll hear how Rosa's work transformed the civil rights movement. Now, back to the story. The black community in Montgomery, Alabama, was outraged following Rosa Parks' arrest on December 1, 1955. The NAACP wanted to capitalize on Rosa's case, raising awareness as they tried to overturn Montgomery's segregation laws. And they decided the best way to fight back would be to boycott the Montgomery City buses on December 5th, the day of Rosa's trial. NAACP volunteers mimeographed over 35,000 flyers to get the word out about the boycott. They read, Stay off the buses Monday in protest of the arrest and trial. You can afford to stay out of school for one day. If you work, take a cab or walk. But please, children and grown-ups, don't ride the bus at all on Monday. These flyers were sent home with black school children. They were posted in black neighborhoods. And on December 4th, Nixon was even able to get an ad in the local paper. On December 5th, 1955, around 20 people gathered at Mount Zion African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Montgomery to discuss the best strategies for the bus boycott. They decided that if Rosa lost the case, the boycott would extend beyond her trial date, indefinitely. To organize a longer bus boycott, the group elected one of their most trusted team members to spearhead the movement, a 26-year-old Baptist reverend by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Together with the help of the NAACP, he formed the Montgomery Improvement Association, Their goal was to keep the boycott going until the status quo changed. That day, 42-year-old Rosa Parks stepped into the stuffy halls of the Montgomery County Courthouse. She was greeted by a bustling crowd of around 500 local supporters cheering her on. Her attorney was a man named Fred Gray, an accomplished lawyer, preacher, and activist who graduated from Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He was a go-getter with a strong passion for civil rights. In fact, upon moving to Alabama, he said he was ready to destroy everything segregated. But given the racist laws in place, Rosa never stood a chance. The entire trial lasted all of 30 minutes, during which Rosa was convicted of disorderly conduct and violating the local bus ordinance. She was fined $10 plus $4 in courtroom fees, 
approximately $150 in today's currency, all for the crime of refusing to vacate a bus seat. The NAACP and the black community at large deemed this verdict unacceptable. Rosa should not be charged with breaking a law if that law was unethical in the first place. And so the Montgomery bus boycott began. It rained on the evening of December 5th, 1955, but even so, the city buses were mostly empty. 40,000 people walked through the rain to get home from work, some as far as 20 miles. As Montgomery's black population made up about 70% of all bus customers, the boycott struck an early and devastating blow. The buses soon became something of a laughingstock. Public buses sat at the side of the road, completely empty except for the drivers. But the boycott also had an adverse effect on Rosa and her husband. A week into the protest, Rosa was fired from her seamstress job, which she'd held for years. No reason was given, but Rosa suspected it was because of her involvement in the boycott. The next week, Raymond also lost his job after talking about the boycott at work, but the setbacks only made the Parks family all the more resolute. As weeks passed, the city of Montgomery began to feel the financial impact of the boycott. Bus fares were a reliable source of income for any city, and now, with the boycott in full swing, that revenue stream was drying up. On January 30th, 1956, the 57th day of the boycott, the home of Dr. Martin Luther King was bombed by white radicals. Two days later, Edgar Nixon's house was also bombed. But once more, the black community refused to be intimidated. In the face of property damage and violence, the boycott continued. Meanwhile, Rosa's legal troubles proliferated. The city of Montgomery had criminalized boycotts, and on February 21, 1956, she was arrested once again for her role in the movement. Her supporters once again bailed her out, but she knew that the fight wasn't over yet. Six months after the boycott began, Rosa's attorney, Fred Gray, finally managed to gain an audience with the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Alabama in June 1956. Fred argued that state bus segregation laws were unconstitutional and violated the rights of his community. On June 5, 1956, the three judges announced their ruling, two to one in favor of Fred Gray, but the fight still wasn't over. The city of Montgomery filed an appeal that took the case to the United States Supreme Court on November 13, 1956. Over the next month, Fred continued to fight for his community. And on December 17, 1956, he emerged victorious. The Supreme Court rejected the appeal and ruled that bus segregation was illegal. At the time, Rosa's case and the accompanying boycott was the largest successful black civil rights action in U.S. history. On December 19, 1956, the Supreme Court's written order arrived at the Montgomery Courthouse. 
segregation of buses was officially illegal in the city. The boycott ended the next day, and Montgomery's black citizens resumed using the buses after 381 days of walking and taking cabs. For her bravery and her vision, Rosa came to be known as the mother of the civil rights movement. Unfortunately, even after the boycott ended, she continued to face further harassment and threats. Rosa and her husband Raymond grew to feel so unsafe, they eventually relocated to Detroit, Michigan in 1957 and settled near Rosa's brother, Sylvester McCauley. While in Detroit, Rosa became an administrative aide in the Detroit office of Congressman John Conyers, Jr. She stayed there from 1964 to her retirement in 1988. Regarding her work at this time, she said, I would have to take longer than a minute to give my whole synopsis of, of my life, but I, I want to let you know that all, all of us uh, should be free and equal and have equal opportunity. And that is what I'm trying to instill and encourage and inspire young people to reach their highest potential. Throughout the 1970s, Rosa Parks donated most of her money to civil rights organizations like the NAACP and witnessed the establishment of a number of equitable laws, including the Fair Housing Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1968. The 1970s also proved to be some of the most personally heartbreaking years of her life. On August 19, 1977, her husband died of throat cancer. A few months later, in November 1977, her brother also died of cancer. Mindful of her husband's inability to receive a formal education during his lifetime, Rosa co-founded the Rosa L. Parks Scholarship Foundation for college-bound high school seniors and the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development to serve Detroit's youth. On October 24, 2005, at the age of 92, Rosa Parks passed away in her apartment in Detroit, Michigan. She was laid to rest in the U.S. Capitol, an honor typically reserved for statesmen and military leaders. In fact, she was the first woman to ever receive such a distinction. At her funeral, over 30,000 people passed by her coffin to pay respects. And on December 1st, 2005, most major cities in the United States left seats empty on public buses to commemorate Rosa's incredible act of civil disobedience. Rosa's dedication to community and equality extended far beyond a refusal to give up her seat on a bus. She was an advocate for black people and women everywhere and helped catapult the civil rights movement to the mainstream. Thanks to her courage, Rosa Parks became a role model and icon for women of color. As she explained, I have learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, knowing what must be done does away with fear.
For more information on Rosa Parks, amongst the many sources we used, we found her autobiography, Rosa Parks, My Story, extremely helpful to our research. Well, thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Anthony Valsic, production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Michael Allen Herman and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.